everyone. This is Damien O'Connell with the Warfighting Society. Welcome to episode two, season two of Controversy and Clarity, the Warfighting Society's podcast. We've got two housekeeping items today. First, I wanted to share that the podcast has exceeded 4,400 streams. So that's pretty awesome. Thanks so much uh, for the support, everybody. And uh, glad to see that uh, people are finding some use in the podcast. Uh, second, we recently published an article on the Warfighting Society where we discuss our goals, our purpose, organization, functioning, as well as our, our future direction. So I will make sure to include the link to that piece in the show description. If you'd like to support the podcast through donations, you can do so through the support tab. Being a monthly subscriber costs just $4.99. And uh, we use the funds to help with advertising and defray any costs associated with the podcast and its production. With that out of the way, let's get to today's conversation. Today's guest is Major General Dale Alford, United States Marine Corps. General Alford enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves in 1985 and following graduation from West Georgia College, earned a commission as a Marine Second Lieutenant in 1987. A career infantry officer, General Alfred has led units from platoon to battalion, commanded a variety of other organizations, and held numerous staff positions and appointments. General Alfred enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves in 1985, and following graduation from West Georgia College, earned a commission as a Marine Second Lieutenant in 1987. A career infantry officer, General Alfred has led units from platoon to battalion, commanded a variety of other organizations, and held numerous staff positions and appointments. In 1989, as a rifle platoon commander with 3rd Battalion 6 Marines, or 3-6 for short, he took part in Operation Just Cause in Panama. In 1990-91, as part of Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm, he served as a mortar platoon commander, again with 3-6. As a senior first lieutenant, he led a light armored infantry detachment on deployment with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit. He next served at Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island as a series commander and operations officer for 3rd Recruit Training Battalion. In 1996, as part of Operation Assured Response, which saw the safeguarding and evacuation of U.S. citizens and select foreign nationals from Liberia, he led a rifle company with 3rd Battalion 8th Marines. He was then promoted to major and became the battalion's operation officer. His next assignment came as the commanding officer of recruiting station Nashville, Tennessee. Following that tour of duty, he returned to the Fleet Marine Force as the executive officer of 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, and in 2003 took part in Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 and the march to Baghdad. As a lieutenant colonel, he returned to 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines to become its commanding officer. He led the unit through two combat deployments, one in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in 2004, and the other as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2005. After being promoted to colonel, he assumed command of the basic school and following that tour held various staff positions, including the director of strategic effects for the International Security Assistance Force in Kabul, Afghanistan. As a brigadier general, he served in turn as the assistant division commander of the 2nd Marine Division, commanding general of the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, and commanding general of Marine Corps Installations East and Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune. While serving in that last name billet, he also was assigned as the Commanding General of Task Force Southwest, Helmand and Nimroz Provinces, Afghanistan, as part of Operation Resolute Support and Operation Freedom Sentinel. He earned his second star during this deployment. I'd like to note that I first met the General in 2011 during his last year of command at the basic school. 
I had been assigned there as part of the case method project under Marine Corps University. And then Colonel Alford not only gave me his full support and blessings, but also carte blanche in deciding where to focus my efforts with the case method. I learned a great deal from him about what leadership should look like, in my opinion, and I owe him a great debt of gratitude for his kindness or encouragement and continued support through the years. So we're, we're really excited to have him on. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you. Yeah, it's good to be here, Damien. Thanks. So, sir, I'd like to just jump right into your operational experiences and um, begin with your deployments as a junior leader. So you took part in Operation Just Cause um, as a platoon commander. What, what was your platoon's mission? What were some of the major challenges that you encountered during the operation? Um, how did you seek to overcome these? Yeah, initially, uh, we did a workup in uh, the summer of 89 and uh, went down the 1st of October and we were a security force, rifle company reinforced, uh, protecting the, the, uh, the tank farm, Erhan tank farm down there right outside of Panama city, outside of Rodman, uh, Naval station. Um, we did these operations we called sand fleas and it was nothing more than to kind of poke at the uh, Noriega regime. Um, and which led to finally, you know, they, the uh, dignity battalions, the dingbats, we called them, uh, they, made, they made a mistake and uh, ended up uh, killing a Marine lieutenant uh, down there um, that was part of Southcom. Southcom used to be in Panama at the time. So that's what kicked off Just Cause, which was December the 19th. Mm -hmm. um, so initially, uh, my mission as rifle platoon commander was we punched out and secured three different uh, villages outside of uh, Panama City, across the canal from Panama City. Um, if to tell you the truth, I mean, we, we had about a, four days of fighting where, where the Panamanian forces fought back with us, uh, against us. And then when Noriega went into that church, uh, at Catholic Church, I think it was the day before Christmas. Panamanian people, the, the Panamanian forces all quit. So I tell people I was in a counterinsurgency for about four days. <laughs> right? And the Panamanian people picked our side. That's the difference. Yeah. Right? Later, right? The Panamanian picked our side, vice Noriega's side. Um, you know, the Americans had been in Panama for many years before that. And you had several uh, bases, um, Navy, Air Force, and Army bases down there. So uh, many, many re retired soldiers and so forth, you know, married Panamanian women and, and so forth and, and, and retired down there. Lived pretty well, you know, in that part of the country back then, or that part of the world. So um, we kind of turned into a security force. We kind of came a police force after the Christmas time frame and slowly integrated the Panamanian force back into. They, as they gave up, we captured them. They took them back, gave them new uniforms, sent them back out to us with, without weapons, uh, with really police gear. And um, by February, I think it was, we were replaced and we came home. So I was down there about five months, I think, total. Sir, what was the, what was the reaction of your Marines to at one at one turn fighting Noriega's forces and then yeah. in the next 
you know, outfitting them with new equipment, new uniforms and saying, all right, you're now the, the, you know, lawfully installed, uh, right. you know, law and we should, Yeah. We, I mean, we, you know, all, every Marine in my platoon got a combat action. Uh, first few days we had a number of firefights. So in order to get a combat action back then, you had to shoot, get shot at, and it had to be reported through task force simplify, which was commanded by a Colonel, um, at the time. Um, trying to think of his name. Great, great man. He was, he was the headquarters battalion, uh, commander for second Marine division is who it was. So he was sent down as with his staff as, was task force simplify, which he received a rifle, a rifle company reinforced he had an LAR LAI company and a couple of fast companies and so forth. Um, but we were able to transition pretty quickly. Out of Marines was, I mean, I had three sergeants, squad leaders, uh, two of them are retired sergeant majors and the other one is a retired ohio state trooper and i just remember they were really mature compared to you know they were as old as me or older and i was a little older when i i was 25 when i got commissioned so at this point so i'm 26 27 years old uh as a as a lieutenant down there um so uh they they were able to you know we stayed with them for six eight weeks and then we turned it over to another company so we were they weren't policing by themselves they were policing alongside of us so we the Amer the, the panamanian people were really afraid of the pdf you know because they would always try to give us food give us free stuff and we 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 make sure we paid for everything because that's what noriega's force was just a bunch of bullies and thugs did you get the sense that the Marines were viewed as, as liberators, that you guys were welcomed yeah, that, to? Exactly. That's what I, the Panamanian people picked our side. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in, in a counterinsurgency, the people decide which side they're picking. And all of them picked the American side. So, sir, I'd like to follow that up with, what did you learn about combat and war fighting or counterinsurgency? Because that, that's a theme that's coming up from serving in, in Panama and how, if at all, did this influence you later down the road? Yeah, it sure did. I mean, a few things. I mean, after, so that was right out. I got to the fleet in February, and I was in Panama, you know, with bullets in my gun in October, for real. You know, and I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, them passing out claymores and hand grenades the night of the 19th. And I was like, all right, this, this is real, getting real hand grenades and, and claymores, right, and laws. Um, so... You know, that was as a young second lieutenant. Then the very next year, first lieutenant, I'm in combat again with Desert Storm. Um, so I, I think I had an advantage my whole career. I always showed up. I had a couple of combat action ribbons on my chest, right, when no, not a lot of people did. So that I think that just lends the confidence. And I mean, that's part of our culture. That's who we are. You know, we've always – if you had you got combat time, you're you looked upon as a, a little different. So I I was, I guess lucky you could say, and and uh, was in combat right right out of the bat as second lieutenant. So and there's many others that are like that that were, you know, from Iraq and Afghanistan who are now becoming, um, getting ready to become battalion commanders. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about um, 
gosh, you know, a lot of, a lot of captains uh, and senior first lieutenants I met when you were at the basic school are now mm -hmm. major. Yep. Uh, yeah. A number of those guys that were both at TBS and IOC mm -hmm. as young captains are coming out of recruitment duty. The other ones that were majors at the time are now all battalion commanders Yeah. or already given up battalion command. Uh, hell, my company commanders from, from Afghanistan 2004 are all colonel commanders now. Wow. Yeah. Time flies. Yeah. It does. So, sir, you, uh, you mentioned that, you know, one year as a second lieutenant, you're in Panama, the next year in Desert Storm. So I'd like to pivot to that. So you're an 81 millimeter mortar platoon commander in, in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah. What was that experience like? You know, how, how did it compare to your experiences in Panama? Uh, what was it like fighting the the Iraqis versus the Panamanians. It sounds like the yeah. Panamanians gave you, you know, four days of, of fighting and that was about it. But the Iraqis gave us almost none, right? Because yeah. they, I mean, I could just remember the devastation of our air campaign and, and massive amounts of artillery uh, on the, the uh, Iraqis as we, before we went through the breach. And when we got to them, they didn't want no part of us, right? The ones that survived had been pounded. I mean, I, I saw what real shell shock looked like from from uh, Iraqis who were giving up. Uh, they'd been in, living in holes for a good while, and been we just pounded the, the dog out of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, really, most of that four day experience, right? But we got the, we were the first battalion to leave Camp Lejeune. Three six, we left the first week in December, right after that huge formation that General Gray came down and, and famously said he sent it in the A team, which pissed off you know first. Of <laughs> I can only been, imagine. They had been there since late August, right, and we're going in in December. And then when we kicked it off in February, I mean we were done in four days. We were in Kuwait, we're on the outskirts of Kuwait City, getting ready to go into the city when they stopped us and sent sent in the Arab coalition to go take liberate the city if you remember mm -hmm. um just the chaos of real massive combat and confusion and you know the, the oil fires and how dark it was at night and, you know we didn't have gps like we do today and stuff that really i just think about the fog of war that's what i learned as in, in that and the massive amounts of logistics it took you know we had so second division had eight Marines and six Marines. And the third regiment was the Tiger Brigade out of Texas that was on the left flank, you know, uh, of the second division. As we, we wheeled, went straight up into Kuwait, outside of Kuwait City. I just remember the massive amounts of fuel trucks and stuff that, that the Tiger Brigade showed up with, right, compared to us. So... You mentioned uh, you mentioned a few things that I'd like to drill down on more. Uh, talking about seeing what real shell shock looks like. Um, to what to what extent or degree did Desert Shield, you know, so the lead up to um, the ground operations, give to what extent did it give you an appreciation for things like air power? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. You know, when you do, when you go through TBS and IOC training, you don't see that, right? You don't get to train with, with you don't even get to train with, you know, that, that amount of artillery or 
you know, tanks and, and so forth, mm-hmm. you know, every equipment. And in Panama, we were, you know, very light. I did, I did do a lot of operations where I flew on the Black Hawk back, back then, right? Mm-hmm. They used to call them flying sergeants. You know, there's always warrant officers flying them, right? So yeah. Who can fly the PI of a Black Hawk, by the way? Um, uh, yeah, it's just, just the massive amounts of, of equipment and, and, and weight that we bring upon an enemy as an American force was uh, eye-opening mm-hmm. back then, right? Putting it all together, putting putting the MAGTAF all together and watching it just crush an enemy was, was I'll never forget. And then you, you know, without skipping ahead too far, but, you know, you get to see this again in 2003, you're back, uh, you're back fighting yeah. in, in Iraq, um, this time as a battalion XO, if that's correct. So, yep. You get a you got a, a sense of what it looks like for a MAGTAF to assemble and you know do what it's it's designed to do. Yeah, we deployed out of here as a MEB, second MEB. When we got into Kuwait, of course they shifted our our air group, commanded by Colonel Boomer at Millstead at the time, um, underneath uh, Major General Amos, right, which was Third Ma. So that that air group, because you can only have one one ace, you know, one desk and, and so forth to control all the air. So that's why we became Task Force Tarp. Mm-hmm. So really, we had a MEB headquarters. We had a pure uh, uh, RLT, Regimental Landing Team, a pure, and and it's commanded by uh, Colonel Bailey. Went on to be Lieutenant General Ron Bailey. Bailey. Yeah, right, Ron Bailey, right. He had three infantry battalions full up, a full artillery battalion, um, a tank company, an LAV company, an AAV company, an engineer company, and a recon company. I mean, 5,000 man RLT and a very small logistics element. Uh, it wasn't what we would consider a COB today. It was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel, but it was much smaller, too small. Um, so that was Task Force Taro. And we never attached to first division. So we worked directly for General Conway, the MAF commander, which there's debate whether that was correct or not. And I would, you know, should we have just been a fourth regiment for General Mattis, is it, right? And then General Natonsky wouldn't have had a mission as a MEP. So that's why it stayed as, as uh, Task Force Tarl. So there's always debate about that, but hell, it works. So. Uh, that's that's the great thing about the Marine Corps. We can just throw anything together. That's the great thing about the MACTAF, right? There is no set thing that's got to be. We can put together just a MACTAF. What, what I went to uh, Liberia, that was uh, Special Purpose MACTAF 8. It was 8th Marine Regimental Headquarters with 3-8 was the battalion, but 3-8 only had two rifle companies and, and two-thirds of a weapons company. So I had a third of the weapons company as a company commander and the other company did. The other rifle company and weapons company stayed home. Hmm. We went on one ship, the Ponce, the Proud Lion. I mean, we hot racked, slept on the floor. Had four, 46 helicopters crammed on them, on an LPD. Sounds like tight quarters. It was. Um, so that's the beauty of what the Corps can do in the MAGTAP and what it does for, for, the, for the nation. So you've seen this you've seen this thing in action uh, numerous times and in different sorts of situations. Uh, yep. So you, you really have a an appreciation for the utility of this this construct called the MAGTAF. 
So I'd like to get back to um, your earlier commands. And first two commands were traditional infantry units, rifle platoon, mortar platoon. Then you served as attach- a detachment commander for light armored vehicles, or um, mm-hmm. what were then for called right, for light armored infantry. Essentially, it's light armored cavalry. What was it like commanding this kind of unit? Um, how did it compare to your previous commands? What, what lessons right. did you take away from your time working and, and commanding LAVs? Yeah, so I got home from Desert Storm in May, and they needed lieutenants over at 2nd LA High. So I volunteered. I want to go over there. I, they had a little school that lasted about three weeks. And now they actually, you actually go to an LAB school, but that was, it was in-house back then. And, and the day that we kind of graduated, got our certificates, General Holcomb, who was the CO of the battalion at the time, went on to be a big brigadier general. Um, called me in and said, hey, I got a debt leaving in six months. Do you want it? Wait, I need you to go home, talk to your wife. I'm like, no, nah, I'll take it right now, right? So um, so I deployed in, in December. Wow. But if you think about it, I deployed in October of 89. I deployed in December of 90. I deployed in December of 91. As a, I was a, you read that I was a captain. I was actually still a lieutenant. I got promoted about time we came home. Okay. I think I got promoted in July of 92 as I was going to Paris Island. Mm-hmm. So I did that deployment as a, as a senior first lieutenant. Uh, and I was attached to two, four. I was, uh, so magnificent bastard. Um, so I immediately, I never was in the LAV battalion, LAI battalion. You know, I got that debt, boom. And I was assigned to two, four, did the workup and then deployed for six months on one of the last, probably not the last, but close to one of the last five ship orgs. Uh, I did a med float. Right. So, you know, we had two LSTs back then. I was on the Woodby Island and then we had an LPD, which was Shreveport. And the big deck was, I think, the Inchon, because we call it the Inchworm, because it was always broke, right? Inching along. So uh, that was a great deployment. I mean, I did, we did seven training ops in seven different countries. Um, and I really, put together we put together me and the cobra deck commander from um i just remember his call sign was lucky and i ran into him not too long ago at a retirement and he remembered me right but me and him put together this air ground calf and i would mark and shoot for him with my lavs and then they you know the cobras would come in and do the killing with hellfires and rockets i don't know if they had hellfires and they had rockets and 20 millimeter guns. Mm-hmm. They probably did have Hellfire. I can't really remember that. But I remember we did that in Israel. We did that in Sardinia. Um, one other place. It might have been in Italy uh, where we did that. So we team up and put together a range where we could uh, live fire both LAVs supporting Cobras. And was this and, just and something fire. you guys decided to yeah, develop on your own? Kind of made it up, yeah. I tell you, it's another thing I did on that deployment is I swam the four twenty fives and shot them in the water, right? And I remember, yeah, talk about that. Wow, right? you had to you had to pile. I forget how many sandbags on the left side where the Marines sit in the back in order to counterbalance the engine, which is on the right side. It was in the book, 
It was in the pub, so I did it, right? I didn't ask nobody. The <laughs> battalion commander was a little bit upset at first, but it worked, right? Right. So, um, I think I did, that in, I did that in Sardinia. Um, yeah. But uh, that was a hell of a deployment. I learned a lot. I, had a, I still stay in touch with a few guys from that platoon. Um, and I think that, you know, mechanized warfare the speed at which you got to think and operate and understand the battle space is different as, as a, as a rifle company commander, rifle platoon commander and so forth. Um, and that's the difference between LAVs and, and you're always thinking about maintenance because if it don't run, there's no good. Right. So, um, so you got to balance fighting and maintenance all the time and the speed that you operate at. Did you, did you encounter any difficulties, you know, having been straight legged infantry, you know, these first two deployments, going to the three-week course, then going with LAI, did you have any difficulty in making that transition in how you thought, or did, did it seem to make sense and you... I, mean, I, had, I had a great platoon sergeant, uh, Staff Sergeant Lanning, a couple of great sergeants that had were LAV guys, right, had been in LAV, had been to Desert Storm with the LAV, had been to Panama, you know. I, the, the company I was in, Delta Company, was the company that was in Just Cause with us. And I had a platoon out of the Delta Company that was attached to 2-4. So I had some Marines that had fought both in Panama, De Desert Storm, and now on a meth float with me. Uh, so I, 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 get, I, I probably did, but I tend to – I know how to listen. That's about the only thing I can do is I, I can feel – I can tell who's warm, who's know what they're doing, and let them run, right? That's, mm. the, that's, the, that's the key to this little white book right here anyway, right? It's called Trust. War right? fighting. Yes, sir. Yeah. The one that's signed by the the man, General Gray. That is awesome. Right, set always sets on my desk. The original, not the MCDP. FMF one. Yes, right. sir. You oh, still that's... got see back in the old days. You put put your name with a pen on oh. offer for somebody didn't steal it, right? I, I think that. I saw that same copy on your desk uh, in Quantico. It's been on my desk for, you know. Damn near 30, 33, 32 years. It's got coffee stains and dip, dip stains on it. So well, well-worn, well-read. Right. Um, in the last podcast, I was talking to, a, to Gunnery Sergeant Adam Duvall, who's now at uh, McTogg, and we had talked about um, the various deployments he had done uh, afloat and trying to, trying to come to grips with the challenge of keeping Marines engaged you know, while they're on ship. Um, and that, you know, at least, you know, I've, I've, I've heard from, uh, particularly younger Marines, you know, there, there's often, um, lack of interest of going on a Mew and, you know, it's, if it's not involving combat, you know, they're, they're not, they're not that excited at it. And I think a lot of that falls on the leadership. So how would you keep, uh, yeah, I, I got your, your question. So let me just tell you my experiences on ship, which are different than going out on a Mew where you're in mod lot like they're doing now right so i did one med float and that was with the lai i did seven training ops and eight port calls in six months we were never on the ship longer than you know five six days right wow. so that's vastly different than their experience now so if we wasn't drinking beer and eating some nice food in some some cool town and along the southern med there in southern europe we were training sure and having fun right so i went to honduras on a ship 
the uh, Austin, but I was just purely sailing there, getting off, and did a, a short security op. And while the second FSSG was doing the first in-stream offload, that was as a rifle platoon commander. Um, I went. My next was was the Med Float, where I just did seven training ops and eight uh, deployments. My next one was straight to Liberia and operated off the ship, right? One company was in for 10 days and then we just flip flop mm -hmm. for about four or five months. That was in 96 and that was on the Ponce. My next deployment was on the Saipan where I went to the March up, right? We sailed there. We got off the ship. When the war was over, we got back on the Saipan. We, we came home. Wow. I mean, it was, you know, so, um, that's it right that's my that's my my deployments on ships so the challenge that a young company commander platoon commander battalion commander has on a on a mu deployment now is vastly different i mm -hmm. think we'll start to get back to more because part of what the marine corps does for the nation is port calls right is getting off showing the flag is getting off spending money is getting off and learning other cultures and showing the American culture. That's why we always, you know, really uh, talk a lot about, you know, for our Marines being hey when they're out on deployment, right? Act, act like you're a grown up, you know, right. you're not, right? So that's very important, right? You know, and you're always going to have a couple of knuckleheads, but, but 99 out of 100 Marines do the right thing <coughs> most of the time. Um, so I think some of that you'll get back to. Because when I was a lieutenant, everybody wanted to be an 8th Marines, right? Because 8th Marines did the med flips. You mm -hmm. had one eight two eight three eight and 2-4. You had four battalions in 8th Marines. You know, one, one to three drill, right? Out six months, home 18. And then 6th Marines only had two battalions that I was in, 1-6 and 3-6. 2-6 was cadre, and that's why 2-4 was, was part of 8th Marines. And then 2nd Marines, 1, 2, and 3 two they did cold weather you know they went to bridgeport they went up to wisconsin and they went to norway right. nobody wanted to be in second marines right so nato's uh, northern flank that whole mission yeah, that's the way it was in 89 90 until until after desert storm it uh so everybody wanted to be in eighth marines you're bombed when you didn't get to and then boom we, we get to go to panama and, and actually get to do a combat operation so, so everybody was jealous because you know they nobody was doing that in the med right 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 back then so but and then i got a chance to do that deployment with two four right after desert storm so uh i got a little taste of all of it but i think you know you gotta you gotta keep you gotta do things to train on on ship you got and the way you do that is through decision games and <coughs> the uh you know this our computer war games and some of the stuff that, that we're developing now that you've been involved with, it's got to be shipboard capable, right? You got to make this where, you know, Marines like gaming, right? They like, right? So if you can tie it to, to war fighting and thinking and decision making and, and that type of stuff, then that's what we should be trying to do while we're on ship. Uh, and then we should get back to getting off ship as much as we can to show the flag, to learn cultures, to train with allied forces and so forth that we kind of have gotten away from the last 20, 
20 years because they've just been sitting out there waiting for something to happen and in the Persian Gulf and I and uh you know in the in the in the uh you know the, the, through the straits and, and and so forth down around the CENTCOM area so you ain't, you ain't get a chance to get off ship much I, I love that that last idea especially sort of this this notion of Marines essentially being ambassadors, you know, of the United right. States and giving that infusion of, of money to the local economy, the interactions between our people and theirs, the, the interactions of culture, um, and that, you know, that, that can go a long way towards creating Absolutely. goodwill. Yep. That's what the Navy and Marine Corps does for the nation in, during peacetime, more than anything. And... There are always a deterrent out there for the for the bad guys, right? They know you're in the area. You're always a target, but you're you're more of a deterrent than you are a target, right? They're more afraid of you than you are of them. Mm-hmm. You always got to be kept on your guards, especially with today's environment. The way the anywhere you go in the world, you could you're a terrorist threat. But hey, that's what we do. Sure, that's that's what we should. So that's part of the trans stuff we should be talking about. We should be making games that have those type scenarios, those, those terrorist threat while in a bar, in a restaurant, you know, in a theater in Italy, right? That should be a scenario right there. How do you react? What do you do? Right. Actually, it's funny uh, at a workshop that I was uh, helping run at EWS uh, actually earlier this year, we had, we gave the majors and the Lieutenant colonels taking part in this, you know, some directions on, hey, come up with the TDG, come up with some sort of decision-making exercise. And one of the groups came up with something like that. You know, hey, you're, you're on deployment, you're in Sicily, you see some fishy stuff, you know, yeah. what do you do? And, and I thought, this is great. You know, we should, you know, to your point, we should have- and That's realistic. Yeah. So, I mean, and then the West Coast, going out of the West Coast and all the places, we, we got to be doing uh, port calls and all these countries that we 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 want to be involved with to do EABO. I mean, we should be going into Vietnam and all over the Philippines, uh, into Guam, Palau, um, uh, Thailand. Sure. Uh, all of these. I mean, we got to be. If we're going to do this right, we got to be getting into these countries, and we got to be training with them, and we've got to be going on liberty sure. in these countries. Uh, makes perfect sense, sir. So we, we've talked a few times about Liberia. I'd like to go a little more in depth if we could. So it's it's 96. Uh, you're taking part in Operation Assured Response. What was your role in the operation? What were some of the challenges you, you encountered? What experiences did uh, did you take from this? Yeah, so I actually, they put General, mm-hmm. Colonel Lefebvre was battalion commander, and I was scheduled to go to 338. Three me and Bill Journey out of AWS. And he needed a company commander to go um, because his his weapons company commander, which is Mike Killian, was going to become the three. And his kilo company commander was uh, uh, Geisler, who was going to become the XO, both selected for major. So he needed a kilo company commander because he wasn't going to take the weapons company commander because he gave two weapons, a third of weapons company to two, the two rifle companies. <clears throat> West Cop, Captain was coming down out of AWS to take weapons. So I, I left AWS two, three weeks early. I didn't graduate. 
uh, you know, they gave me a graduation certificate, General Jones, Colonel Jones, Little Jones, T.S. Jones, tough shit, we used to call him, because uh, he was, and he's a great American, great man. Um, and I sailed over with, and I flew over with uh, Colonel LeFevre early as an advanced party. And then when the ship got there, I went out on the ship and took command of my company. I really, literally took command of the company on the on the tail of the ship, locked and loaded, got onto a helicopter and flew into Liberia, back into and took over. And I replaced Jeff Kenny's company, two two. So Jeff Kenny and and Millinger were the two company commanders from two two. And it was me and. Um, uh, I, I, I apologize. I forgot his name. I can see his face. So we were two two rifle companies, and then the Geisler became the XO, and Mike Killian became the three. So we really only had two companies reinforced there, mm-hmm. and we would spend ten days at a time, and then flip flop on on the side on the on the uh, Ponce. And really, what I saw there, we no combat action ribbon, right? We went. But I watched brutal combat right outside the gates of, of the U. We, we secured both the U.S. and the Br- British Embassy. I mean, they were hacking people in the streets. I mean, it was, it was tribe on tribe, just brutal combat uh, down to the most violent level. And took a city, Monrovia. We also secured the airport at times when pl- plane, planes came in. And we had to go a couple of times. I remember right. But they took a city, a beautiful city, Monrovia was, and completely destroyed it, completely gutted it. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the, that, that'll be the, that's the most violent civil war I've ever seen, including Afghanistan and Iraq. There's nothing to compare to how those people went after each other in that city. What, what's going on in your head as a company commander watching this city eat itself alive. What, right. I mean, what are you thinking to yourself? What are you saying to your Marines? Cause I'm sure there we were, were times. Was, we were there for us, right? With that particular time, that wasn't counterinsurgency. That wasn't amongst the people. We were there for one mission and that's to make sure that the U S and British embassy wasn't destroyed like the rest of the city. And we would have killed anybody that, that came near, you know, Tutu did, actually had a couple of firefights and, and killed some guys in the streets. Uh, Jeff Kenny's company did. Um, that's the year he won the Leftwoods that year. Uh, he's the 96 winner uh, as a company commander in Liberia. Um, yeah, I mean, our job was to make sure that we didn't care what happened outside the gate, other than to watch it, which right. is not what in a. Uh, so you needed to talk to your Marines about real death because they were watching it. You know, it's like, like watching a bad movie. What, what were, I mean, if you could, sir, what are some of the things you're saying to your guys? I mean, what reactions are you noticing them having watching this unfold? Yeah, I guess, you know, we talked about maybe our way of life, you know, how we're, we're there to protect the U.S. Embassy and the British Embassy at the time because they left. And, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if I've talked a whole lot about that. I probably should have talked more about, right? But I was probably, <laughs> you know, I'd seen death in Panama. I'd seen some death in, in, 
in uh, Desert Storm, but this was ugly. They they were this was this was country people tearing their their themselves apart. Um, probably you know the only time that's ever happened in America is Civil War, like you know. You see a little bit of it in the streets of cities today, which worries me. Sure. Right. But yeah, that's uh, you know, a violent civil war is one of the nastiest wars you can be involved in, and we saw that, of course, between the Sunni and Shia and in, in, in Iraq. So Liberia and, kind of gives you a, a. I mean, you said it was the it was the worst you had seen, but. Um, you end up seeing this again in Iraq. I'm sure you see it again to some degree in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, when, when, you know, countrymen start to tear their part, self apart is, uh, is not a pretty thing. And that's what worries me about what's going on in our streets today. A little bit. Right. I've seen, and it can, it can, it can spiral out of control fast. Yeah. As someone who's living in DC, I can, I can relate and uh, have right. some uh, of the same fears. So before we, we get to actually really returning to your experiences in, um, in Iraq as, as, as the XO of, I think it was 2-8, um, yeah. I'd like to ask, what were the kinds of characteristics and qualities that you looked for and sought to develop in your squad leaders when you were a platoon commander um, or in your platoon commanders when, when you led your company? Yeah, so, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing TDGs back then. We did the paper TDGs, right, especially with my lieutenants. You know, I would, we'd all, I'd print them out. I'd write them up, print them out, and send lieutenants to four corners with radios. And we'd all get on radios and do the TDGs over radio, which is hard, right? It's harder, right? But oh, yeah. you start to learn how people think, how people react, how decisions are made. We did a lot of that. In general, LaFavor encouraged that. We did sand tables at, at battalion level on Fridays. Uh, we had a volleyball court out back that we turned into a, 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 a you know, a sand table, a TDG table. With squad leaders, you know, I, I really spent a lot of time. I wanted squad leaders to really understand, you know, know their men, you know, really know their men, right? That's the most important thing, a squad leader. If he can, and we don't have enough of that. We're, and one of the reasons is they don't live together. You know, when I was a, a rifle platoon commander and an A1's platoon commander, we were an open squad base over in Geiger. When we came back from the wars, when we came to Mainside, 3-6. And then as a company commander, we had three-man three rooms, you know, which are now two-man rooms. So Marines lived together more back then, right? And when you live together, like really live together, you know, you really get to know a person and all the, everything about that person. So different times, it's harder now. These, these kids are locked up on their phones and, you know, the guys next door and they're texting back and forth, right? Type stuff, right? It's, it's vastly different than, so there's, there's different challenges for the young lieutenant and squad leader than, than, than I had. Uh, do you see, you know, do you see any, you know, what, what options or what ways do you think we can try to tackle that? I mean, it's, it's a different, like you said, it's a different era, but you know, if, if, you know, with your experience now, if you were to start your career again, second Lieutenant right. Alfred, how all those games, all those games that you're, you're developing and, and we've, that we've developed down here with, uh, 
you know, the, that Marcus Mines uh, mm-hmm. two, two six started, you know, that type of stuff, this gunfighter jam that we're, if you've seen that thing, I've, I've, I've heard a bit about it. Yeah. Squads go in there, squads and spend the afternoon shooting. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's shooting drills together and, and having to work together. And, uh, those are, we got some technologies now that really are helping if we take advantage of them It will make us better than we were. Right. And that's, so there's, you're going to have to embrace some of these technologies. The Marine Corps is going to have to spend some money. It'll save money in the long run. These IATs, these gunfighter jams, these, these robots, these robot targets we're using are awesome. I mean, they are the best training tool I've ever seen. Nothing, hands down, nothing close. You know why? Because my experience from a combat tours is when you shoot at the back, that guy, he runs. And you need to learn how to shoot a running guy. Mm-hmm. And pop-up targets and, and targets on rails is all bullshit compared to these things. Uh, and everything that the that all the Marines feedback from the, from these things is nothing but positive. They love them. They they want to be ready. They want to go to the field. They want to go train with these things. So and they're realistic. So that type of technologies and this gunfighter jam technology. I mean, we need one of these things in every regiment. That was my next it's, question. Is that is yeah. it, this is something that you'd want to outfit every you know, every regiment? Every, every Hell regiment. yeah. Yeah. At least every regiment, if not every battalion. I mean, we're, and we're getting in talking about money, but hey, I'm tired of hearing this, right? We, this, uh, you know, General Mattis, with, Secretary Mattis with this lethality task force, is we got to spend some money on our, our close combat forces. If we're serious about what, what the force design is going to do and how you're reducing the amount of infantry, I mean, we got to be more elite. And in order to do that, you got to spend some money on the individual. Uh, infantry marine and how he trains to fight and we're not doing that yet sir as a you know, quick aside i haven't heard anything uh from the task force the ccltf in a while and i know it was that's because matt secretary matt has left so i mean it, it really you know he was the the prime mover behind that you know without yeah, you him gotta, you gotta have leadership from the top down to make big changes like this and we've always spent our money on big equipment, F-35s, ACBs, and so forth. But yeah, that's just a couple in the Marine Corps, right? That really, and we've never really put real money into the individual infantrymen. Uh, so I mean, he used to say, you know, you would never, ever think about putting a pilot in an F-18 and let him take off, land that F-18, drop bombs, shoot shoot the guns of that F-18 without doing what first? Multiple times. Multiple, multiple simulations before mm-hmm. he does it for real. Right? Before he does it for real, you would never put a pilot in an airplane until he went through multiple hundreds of simulation flights and, and shooting it and landing it and taking it off and blah, blah, so forth. I gotcha. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. So why in the hell are we putting a rifle squad into real combat before he's been through hundreds of simulations? Right. Right. And that's what the IAT was supposed to be in this gunfighter jam and these these ro- robotic targets and 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 I test this I test three that we're trying to develop. You know, we can do real force on force. Right. I mean, we're starting to tinker with putting some real money behind. But the, the special forces has been doing this for years. Right. right. 
the individual soldier matters if you're talking about doing this. And we we got to change our mindset, and it, it can only be done from the top down. And that's why the the, the lethality task force has waned and died because Mattis left, and he's he he's the one who actually experienced it, right? He's the one that started the infantry immersion trainer, right? So it's the same idea. Yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was General Robert Scales who said. You know, if, if the task force gets moved under the army, uh, it's it's going to die. You know, if it's going to be essentially an army uh, army program, yeah, you'll still have the Marines involved, but it's it's not going to have the same sort of I think same sort of pull that it had when when I, uh, I, I don't know where it's at. I just know I don't. I'm not seeing the original vision out of it that I that yeah. I read. I'm not reading about it like I was reading about it, you know, two years ago. Yeah, likewise. I mean, there were, there was almost an article themed every month, either Marine Corps Times, Army Times, War on the Rocks, and I haven't seen anything, certainly nothing uh, much this year uh, lately. Sir, if we could, um, I'd like to get back to your time as, a, as an executive officer, 2-8. What was the experience like? being a part of the march to baghdad i mean this yeah. is this is on a scale and in a position of of responsibility i think much larger than you had seen at, at least i mean as far as responsibility this is the most you'd you'd had i guess as a as a uh, as an xo um and scale was comparable to desert storm desert shield uh, first i'll tell you before I, I, so i was the xo 28 worked for Roy mortensen who was a great battalion commander uh, but before that i was three years on recruiting duty and i'm telling you i've been to combat eight times but i got ptsd from three years on recruiting duty buddy because that's the hard you're talking about responsibility and one of the hardest things i ever did in my life and uh and i learned a lot about leading i learned a lot about uh counterinsurgency right because that's what you are you're a counterinsurgent when you're amongst the people right you got to be persistent you got to be present and you got to be patient, right? Three Ps of counterinsurgency, right? So it's, it all relates to recruiting duty. You're doing distributed ops, right? You got to you got to use that little white book because you got to trust a lot of NCOs and staff NCOs out there, you know, way away from the flagpole. So I learned a hell of a lot being there. And I took over a station that was a wreck, we, just you, a damn mess. Let, sir, I'm happy to have to go down that that track first yeah, if you'd like. Right, but, but just. I really learned a lot about myself and about leadership. You know, I just won the leftwards trophy, and I thought I was shit hot. And I got kicked right in the jimmies, right out, right out of the kick. And that's what I needed, right? So it was a brutal three years. But uh, it made me a better officer, made me a better combat leader, made me a better leader of Marines. So, so to march to Baghdad, I'm, you know, I'd been in the XO about uh, six months, and we were supposed to go to uh, Okinawa for UDP. And, and instead, we ended up uh, in January. We deployed in January on the Saipan with with Second Mav because it was one two three two and two eight. And the reason it wasn't two two is because two two was out on a on a med float. So two eight replaced uh, two two in, in the Second Marine Regiment. Um, you know, I had the main, so I'm the, the Bravo Command Group. I was in a hell of a firefight the night of the, uh, February twenty sixth. Had 33 Marines out of 105 wounded. Um, called called artillery danger close within 100 yards of my position. One round short, cracked both my back teeth. I mean, um, it was. Uh, I mean, we were fighting the Fedayeen all through through Nazaria was our big fight. 
right? And and we didn't capture a damn one of them. We killed every single one of them. They, they didn't give up. They truly were fanatics. Um, how would you characterize right. how they fought? You know, how were how were they fighting you guys? What, what did it that look a, like? It was a guerrilla tactics, small groups. Um, you know, RPGs, hand grenades, and the machine guns, and rifles. Uh, small mortars. Uh, they were an organized force, but fought at the at the squad size units. Uh, kind of swarm tactics. Uh, easy to kill, uh, but you, you had to kill them. So there wasn't no giving up. There's no breaking of will here. Right. No, I didn't, didn't see a single one ever give up. Not one that whole time. So we never ran up against the uh, Iraqi army. Um, you know, we one, one, two did some killing there at Nazaria, and they fell back, and they also did some killing. Uh, their lead element is really LAR. Uh, did some killing um, in uh, Al Kut uh, of the Iraqi army, but two eight we were fighting the Fedadin mostly. But as 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 the XO and seeing all this fighting being you know being sounds like you were wounded. Um, no, I, no, that that didn't count me as a wound back then. Really? I'm glad it, I'm glad it didn't. Right, that's yeah. cracked my cracked my back teeth. I had to eat on my left side for about three months till I could get home and get fit. To get them pulled out and redone. I must have been gritting my teeth when the round hit. I could feel the heat go over me. I didn't get a scratch on me. It just cracked my teeth all the way through the roots. Wow. I just went to this big uh, medical thing, two-day medical thing that they, they're doing with generals, and uh, they're checking me all over for TBI. I was like, I ain't got TBI. I ain't got a ring. In. My, my hearing's fine. My eardrum works. It's like, how could that be? I was like, hell, I don't know. You're the doctor. Tell me. <laughs> show, yeah, show me what's going on. Um, yes, I don't want to have TBI. Yeah, right. <laughs> with with, with uh, the casualties, you know, the, the unit took. I mean, ha had you been in, in your your previous deployments, Panama, Desert Storm, um, you hadn't seen casualties like this before. So, as as a you know, as a leader of Marines, how are you reacting to? Yeah, it's experiencing. Just, yeah, just reacted. Just did did what you're trained to do. I mean, I don't, you know, I've never, you know, I this medical thing. That it was an hour and a half session with a psychiatrist, right? That is part of the whole thing, right? And I was like, I don't lose one wink of sleep over an enemy I've ever killed, or even Marines have died under my command. That's because I was out there with them. That's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I wish it didn't happen, but it does. It's, and and if you say that I'm going to bring everybody home, you're 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 not. I don't care how good you are. War takes casualties, and people die, and people get wounded, and you can't. It's just the nature of war, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some civilians that I've killed over the years that I wished I didn't, right? That I, I wished I could have a do-over, right? That by mistake, right? Mm -hmm. I've made mistakes, but. I mean, I, I just, this, that's what we were trained to do. Uh, I thought that we were just, it, it was a just war that I was fighting. So I've never, you know, I, you know, I, I shed a tear over Marines who've died when taps plays and that type of stuff, right? Ceremonies. But um, I don't know, it's, 
that's who we are. It's part of our, and, and I've, I've seen it multiple times now. Right. So, sure. I mean, it's this past deployment, you know, I'm watching death through a screen every single day, multiple times a day. Um, this is task force Southwest. Yes. You know, we're killing every single day, bad guys. Um, there's very few days that I, we didn't kill somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're watching it up close and personal through a screen, which is different than it is in person. It's different than putting one of your own Marines in a body bag or even the enemy mm-hmm. up close and personal when you're doing it through a screen. Very different. So it's more, so I got the sense of how, how pilots view war, right? Very different than an infantryman on the ground uh, that's cold, wet, tired, and hungry and scared to death, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, it's two different, it's two different things. So I've had a chance to do both now. So, sir, um, following the march up, you know, you you, be, you eventually become a lieutenant colonel, uh, and you lead your battalion, three six, through two very different counterinsurgency fights, one in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. Yeah. Could you talk about the similarities in your deployments, the differences, how these experiences shaped your understanding of war fighting, leadership, how to train and educate for combat, you know, any of those things? Right. Okay, so took command of 3-6 in February of 04, uh, deployed in April, came home in December. So I was over there about eight months that first deployment to Afghanistan. Um, we were spread out, had four rifle companies spread over about 400 mile area in Eastern Afghanistan, had a company and host, a company. We moved around multiple times, but our final footprint was a company and host, a company in Gardez, a company in Jalalabad, and a company in Asadabad with multiple platoon outposts from, from those. So you're doing distributed ops from the start, it sounds like. And I was in a Humvee driving. It'd take me, you know, a month to go to visit all, because you're doing back rows through through creek beds and a whole bit. I had a, a, a heavy guns platoon that we roved with, mostly. Um, and <laughs> we, we had a brand new Afghan army with us in Jalalabad and Asadabad. And we had the militia still with us in Host and and Gardez, right? That were t- paired with, and we wasn't really living amongst the people, right? So I learned that because you know, we really couldn't, you know, we were so spread out, so distributed that our interaction with the people was very minor compared to what we did the next year in Iraq. And I learned from that. I learned that what we were doing in Afghanistan was not going to work, right? So when I got to, we got to Iraq in August of 05. So came home in December of four, went back in August of 05. I said to myself, we're going, we're, we're taking these towns back, right? And we did these, these platoon position, company positions. We, we pushed them up ourselves, went out and just took it back and lived amongst the people, moved moved Iraqi soldiers in with us. They lived in the same camps as we did in Iraq and, and so forth that we didn't quite do in Afghanistan. We were separated both, right? We linked up for, for operations and, and stuff. 
we did a lot of operations on our own, especially up north in the side of We were with special forces and down in Jalalabad. So we had special forces here. Well, we, we did in host too. We had SEAL team. We had SEALs with us down there. So um, we killed, you know, the border, it was a border fight in 04, right? We we're, it was a cat and mouse catching, catching the mice coming through the holes, right? And we tried to kill them type operations. Um, uh, had three Marines killed and in, in, uh, in multiple wounded in Afghanistan. And then um, in the next year, eight, eight dead and hundred, at least a hundred wounded. Mm -hmm. But we did two battalion size operations in, in Iraq the next year. Operation Iron Fist and then Steel Curtain. This is in the Al-Qaim area, correct? Yeah, yeah, about Al-Qaim. And it was, you know, and talking about the MAGTAF combined arms, right? But no artillery, though. Uh, we, it was all mortars and, and F-18s and, and, and Cobras mm -hmm. was our fire support. Um, very different than, than the march up, you know, two years earlier. So, you know, you think about it in 2003 to march up, 2004, Afghanistan, 2005, six, and back in Iraq. Hmm. Uh, it was back to back to back. Went home longer than uh, six or seven months between each one of those three combat deployments. Three very different combat deployments, too. What, how would you characterize the, you know, the differences, similarities between the enemy you're fighting in Afghanistan and the one you're fighting when you're in Al Qaim in, in that area? Uh, different. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the, the Afghans wasn't fanatics. They wasn't, they wasn't there to die. Mm -hmm. They were fighting us, right. And fighting us and, and hitting and running, right. Where the Iraqis or the, the Al Qaeda in Iraq, we were, it was more like the Fedadine. They were there to die. We killed them. Right. Very few of them gave up. They were blowing themselves up. We had suicide car bombs. We had the IED, all that stuff that, right? And and then when we went into the cities, they they fought to the death. Mm. Very few of them gave up in Al Qaeda, right? Very similar to to the Fedayeen and Nazaria, where the Afghans they ain't there to die, right? They're there to fight, and and they have tactics, and they they fight more like you know it's a guerrilla fight, but they're you know they're they're not ready to give their country for most of them for, for, uh, I mean, give their life for their, their cause or whatever. They're, they're mm -hmm. there to fight. It's very different, especially mm -hmm. in 04. And even when I was back there in eight, nine, um, you had a few more this, that would, that were blowing themselves up here lately in, in Afghanistan. But, uh, but that's, that's, that was much more rare than it was in Iraq and, you know, the height of the Iraq, uh, the Iraq war, five, six, seven time frame. I'm guessing you're probably seeing a lot more, you're seeing a lot, I mean, for the reasons you just outlined, but you're also seeing a lot more IEDs in Iraq during that deployment than the, the 2004 deployment to Afghanistan. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And then, uh, the IED threat in Afghanistan just went through the roof in nine, 10, you know, 11 time frame when the Marines, you know, I, I was sent there in eight by General Conway to get the Marine Corps back in. That was my mission. And we, mm -hmm. we came back in 
with with General Nicholson in uh, Meb A in uh, March of '09. We got mm -hmm. back in there, right? Yeah. And we that's when we, you know, originally Meb A was underneath RC South out of Kandahar. It didn't break away as its own RC until the next year. Mm. So, so the whole year that General Nicholson, Brigadier General Nicholson at the time was there, he was fighting under RC South mm. as as Mab A. Mm -hmm. Right. So it took a while to to evolve that into what what most people when they think about our time in Afghanistan, but it started in March of nine. And uh, I remember it started before that because we had the Muse in there before that. Right. Again, at, at TBS, when you were there, I remember several, I think Andy Hornfeck, I think uh, Dennis Dunbar, I think they had been part of some news before the, the Marines had gotten in in a back way. And then... And, and 2-7 went in there as just a pure battalion that split up to do police advising. Mm. Got their asses handed to them because, I mean, that showed the, the value of the MAGTAF. Sending in a pure infantry battalion, splitting it up into police stations was not a good idea. We had, I mean, uh, Rick Hall, you know, that battalion, he fought that battalion hard uh, with, that, with no support. Hmm. You know, we ended up, we had a Mew there, 24th Mew, Petranzio, that ended up leaving some of his helicopters, and I think he even left his Harriers there about halfway through 2-7's deployment because they had no support. Right. So they're, they're fighting this fight on their own. On their own with rifles, right? Man on man is not a good, I mean, it really did. And I think General Conway knew that that was a mistake, you know, but he was trying to get us into Afghanistan. Uh, but, you know, it shows the value of the MAGTAF. Mm -hmm. and, and when the MAGTAF shows up, we don't lose. I mean, MAB-A showed that when they went in there in 09. Was that, uh, you've got That's Operation? Marcia. That was, that okay. was the Mar first Marja campaign was, was Meb A. Mm -hmm. And the f when was that? The fall, fall of 09, right? Well, late, I know you, you've, you've got, because I remember Eric Metter, who was, who was yeah. at TBS with you. Um, I want to say he was 2-8, and there was Operation Kanjari. He was Echo Company 2-8, yeah. And then Marja, I think, so happens after fall. that. That was the fall of nine. I was back okay. in there. I came back over there in fall of nine. I came home for about two months and went back. I spent about, out of my 24 months on joint duty, about 14 of it was in Afghanistan and, and about three months in Iraq during that, when I was at Ida. Um, that's when I was, uh, the strategic effects he called it. I was really McKernan's coin advisor. I helped him put together all his coin policies and then he had me, I mean, I visited like 28, 29, maybe 30 provinces out of 33 that, that year. Yeah, that was a, un a very unique uh, year and, and to get to really understand the Afghan people. And, and, Would you and talk about that, sir? Yeah, because I mean, most, <laughs> most Marines, you know, 09 onward, only saw Helmand. You... I saw the whole country. So what did, and I, and I recalled Tony Zinni, who was a, he was a, an advisor with the South Vietnamese Marines during yeah. his first tour, talking about how he was able to go all over South Vietnam and get a much better sense of yeah. uh, how the war was really going compared to just a army Absolutely. or Marine, you know, platoon commander in a 
very specific AO. So yeah. I'm curious if you had a similar experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I spent time with a French mountain battalion in Capisa. I spent time with the, the, the Dutch Marines and Dutch soldiers up in Urzgan, with the Canadians in, in, in Kandahar, with the Germans up in uh, 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 Sharif, mm -hmm. the Norwegians in, outside of Maha Sharif over in uh, uh, Balamaga, uh, the Italians and the, and, the, and the Spaniards out in Herat, um, the U.S. high-level special forces out on the borders, you know, in the areas that I was in mm. back in 04. Um, that was a hell of an experience. I mean, I used to bum rides. I, I flew on every possible kind of, you know, because there's a lot of contracted uh, Soviet helicopters and airplanes and stuff, right? I had a good friend of mine that was was uh, with OGA that that uh, helped me out on a number of occasions. So I was like a freelance eyes and ears for General McKiernan for uh, that whole year. Let me tell you something. He had, that was one of the best soldiers, best leaders I've ever served under by far. The the even Gates in his book said he made a mistake when they fired him. Mm. I mean, I mean, G General McChrystal, when he came in, he didn't change a whole lot from what he's doing. They might think they did, but they didn't. General McKernan understood counterinsurgency. He had a good campaign plan. Uh, he was the first to really put one in place. Mm -hmm. um, so I got nothing but great things to say about General McKernan and, 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 and the, and how, how graceful he was and took him being relieved over there and sent home mm. just when he was getting it going. Um, I got to see him again when I was over there last year. He, he pro bono, he come over and worked for General Scotty Miller. Wow. Uh, just, you know, giving him his ideas. Just what a, there's another hell of a, I've worked for some great soldiers. Uh, there's none better than Miller, Scotty Miller. That's, mm. that's got it now. I mean, he's the real deal. You know his background with you know, with JSOC and, 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 you know, commanded the unit and all that stuff, right? Um, there's none better. We're for a guy in, in Iraq. Uh, we started out in Kuwait and jumped to Iraq. And uh, I was only there four months because of, that's when I got double hip replacement. In 14, brand new one star. Um, uh, James Terry, three star at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful uh, soldier. So I, I've had an opportunity to work for a lot of army officers, and they're good or better than we ever think we are, right? They just don't fight. They don't. That's another thing. One of your questions, it, it worries me a little bit, right? You know, what, what should we change at boot camp, right? I, mm -hmm. in, in my opinion, is absolutely nothing. Keep it as is. Nothing. The boot camp is what makes us different from everybody else. I mean, it really does. There's an ethos in us as Marines that are different than, than soldiers. We recruit the same guy as the U.S. Army gets. There's something we do at boot camp, right? And I've watched it. I've been through it as a – and then I was a company commander, serious commander, company commander for three years now and then. Um, you know, uh, uh, T.X. Hammett wrote a book. I wrote it down. Uh, I was looking at it last night, uh, the Forgotten Warriors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the 1st Marine Brigade, right? 
Well, it's really about the ethos of the course mm. and why we are like who, where we are. And he uses that first Marine Brigade as an example, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really about who we are as a corps and why we're different and why we fight like we do. So I worry as we start to change things at, at our boot camps that it's going to change who we are as a corps. So, sir, you're, you're well aware of fourth phase, right, which has been added to, to boot camp. And the, the recruits are not recruits anymore. They're Marines at that at that point. Um, I'm good uh, with that. I, I think that's a good piece. Yeah. But you, you would want to see drill, you know, close order drill and essentially yeah, everything so, else. I mean, you ask about your games and stuff. Should we do that? I don't think we should do that until MCT and SOI. Mm -hmm. Follow on schools. Yeah. Yeah. But we should, that's when we should be doing a lot of them, right? There's, mm -hmm. right. That's when, once they're a Marine, right? There's a, there's a transformation that really does happen at boot camp, and we shouldn't screw with that too much, in my opinion. What do you think is, you know, as someone who went through it, as someone who is part of the pipeline to get people to it, um, and someone who is at Paris Island uh, as an officer, and you mentioned this something, what do you, I guess, could you just talk a little more about that? What do you think it is that, if you could boil it down, I make tongue in cheek of this, but we're the best brainwashers in the world. It's a good brainwashing, but we straight up brainwashing. Let me give you some examples, sure. right? And how the cult, I call it. When you ride around the countryside of America, you'll ride by houses and you'll see a flagpole out front with an American flag and a Marine Corps flag flying underneath it. They're everywhere. All, mm -hmm. Anywhere you drive, they're everywhere. Do you ever see an American flag and an army flag, an American flag, rarely, rarely, an American flag and Air Force flag. You know why? Because mm. they're not a cult like we are. Right? It's a good cult, but it's a cult. Right? There's something that we do at Paris, and that makes us different in combat. It just does, and I, I it's hard to describe what it is. But everybody listening to this this podcast, that's a Marine, knows what the hell I'm talking about. And we do it at Paris Island, San Diego, and the, the hills of Quantico. You know, it's not, it's not really done at OCS. It's done at TBS. OCS is a screening uh, tool. Mm -hmm. TBS is where we make, turn you into a Marine officer. OCS seeks you've got what it, be, it takes to be a Marine officer. Mm -hmm. where, where Paris Island, San Diego, turn you into a Marine. So um, I'm curious, sir, you know, you're, you're well aware of, you know, the changes happening across TCOM and this whole idea of 21st century learning. How, how do you see that sitting with TBS, sitting with the, the recruit depots? Um, is, is there a way to keep what you find so effective with our, with our entry, you know, our, our initial schools, our, our initial courses and I think that, I think we should be doing that in our initial schools, which is MCT, SOI. So just not the not the initial tier, not the you know the the very first school that a, a marine is gonna is yeah, gonna go through. I, I'm just, I mean, messing with our boot camps is just. I mean, we've done some some tinkering with them, but even the crucible. When I went through boot camp, you went to the field for a week. There was a crucible like it wasn't as good as the crucible is now that you know crew like put in some 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago but there was a type of a crucible he just enhanced it gave a name to it made it better 
Mm. You know, the eagle globe and anchor in the hand, all that stuff, right? Uh, and how we run rifle ranges, right? And how we do those things. We just, how we do drill, the, the, the nature of the, of the squad bay is where, where the real transformation happens, right? I just, I worry about us changing that. And, and, and that changes over time the ethos of who we are as a core sure. and and nobody can argue with me because we've been successful with it right it's you know general conway was always he didn't want to mess with any kind of anything that did mess mess with boot camp uh or you know the rifle ranges out some of our core things of who we are mm-hmm. uh, I, you know we're re- i like what we're doing with our our new qualifications uh, we're changing, you know, we're changing from paper shooters to people shooter type, type, uh, we're using optics and stuff, but I'm not so sure we should change the very first time that we train how to use a rifle, which is at boot camp. Do you, do you almost see that as part of a, you know, part of the rite of passage of, of being a Marine, you know, to there's keep, some, there's something about what we do that changes a young American into a Marine and you are a Marine once a Marine, always Marine is so true. And those flags, you can pull into one of those little houses somewhere in you know, outside of uh, Western Virginia out there somewhere. And I guarantee you knock on the door. I guarantee he was in the Marine Corps four years hmm. and he's flying a Marine Corps flag out front. I bet you don't even know what color the army flag is. What color is it? It's in black. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Everybody says black. You know that's why? What it, black? That's what I've seen though. When it's when someone right. flies, you know why? Because that's that's the football team from West Point's flag. Uh, flag. Interesting. The army flag. The army flag is white. white uh, okay, flag. you're right. Now you're right. Yeah. Right. You're, you just made yeah. my point. You yeah. made my point. And, right. and and I am recalling having seen it, but but in far far fewer numbers than Marine Corps flags. You're absolutely right. I mean, just down the street from where I live, right. where, where I go for my about what yeah. we do that you can't quite put your finger on that we need to be careful about messing with. So it makes, it makes something that we do makes that young Marine charge into a a room and throw a grenade and kill everything inside. Right. And, and and everything in your being as a human being would say, don't do that. Mm -hmm. But we do it. I don't, there's just something about being a Marine that we, we need to be careful of of messing with. Yeah. In my opinion. Right. No, I, 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 I love hearing these views, sir. It's, I think it's great food for thought. Um, one thing that really sparked my interest was this idea, not this idea, but this experience you had where you're going all over Afghanistan and you're spending time with these different units, these, these uh, units of other militaries. What, if anything, did you pick up from spending time with yeah, I mean, the Danes, with the Germans? Yep, each one. I mean, so when you're up back up in Kabul and you're with all the Americans and ISAF, which is mostly, you know, and you hear a lot of people badmouth, you know, NATO forces, mm-hmm. you know, and it's because of lack of understanding, lack of understanding politics and, and, and the different caveats that countries have, why they have those caveats and stuff and respecting the other countries and why they have those, right? was was a real lesson for me and i had some some uh uh some people nato partners that i worked with that really explained and you really start to understand the 
the value of alliances and, and contributions. I flew, I flew on these, uh, these uh, German, I, I forget, there's like C-150s or C-120s. They had two engines, vice four, like our C-130s. Same airplane, just about, but less powerful. But they had a bunch of them. We flew, they moved a lot of people and gear in those things, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a huge contribution. I remember they'd cut the engines off. It felt like the engines would cut off as they start to dive. It's like, okay, this is it. Two or three times I felt, oh, fuck. <laughs> that man quit on me. And then they <laughs> crank back up, right, when, as they get to land. It used to scare the hell out of me. But I flew, they were always moving gear and people in those things. Mm. I mean, each one of these countries brought something to our, you know, our, our, the fight that we were involved in. And the big gorilla, America, was the main effort. But it should have been. We're the country that got attacked. We're the ones uh, that 9-11 happened to us. They're the ones who were, uh, you know, uh, honoring Article 5, right? Supporting, yeah. And we need to talk about it. You know, General Mattis talk, has talked about that a number of times, right? You know, and, you know, the, the, what Churchill said, the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's absolutely true. And, and, that, and as a brand new colonel, a frock colonel most of that time, I really got to understand that, which I think, you know, helps me in, as, I, as I've moved up over the years. So, sure. yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, sir. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about with your time as a battalion commander. So, and correct me if I have these numbers wrong, of the 950 or so Marines and sailors you, who deployed with you to Afghanistan in 2004, about 700 joined with you for the, the deployment in 2005 to Iraq. What effects did this have on how you led the battalion through combat that second time around? Unbelievably huge, which is hard to describe. I've told this story a number of times. Like you said, about 700 went back. But I had all the same company commanders. Two of my company commanders, one became three, the other an XO. The two, three alphas became company commanders that were in Afghanistan. I mean, it was all the same, six same captains, right? First sergeants are all pretty much all the same. I mean, the NCO is the most important, right? All those kids went to Afghanistan as a corporal and Iraq as a sergeant. Uh, and and when I said, when I thought about turning left, they just knew to turn left. It just, it, it's, it's hard to describe how the reason we were so good. The reason that I'm a general is because of that Iraq deployment, bar none. There's no, no question about it, right? I, we, the stuff that that battalion went in there and did, and one of the main reasons that it was so successful is because we had been together for a year and a half when we went into Iraq. So that, that white book on your, on your desk, you're talking about trust, implicit communication. Right. Yep. It sounds like your battalion, Absolutely. that second go around, yep. you know, had through and through. Sir, you, you've uh, been described as a self-taught student of counterinsurgency. What, works or authors thinkers have influenced you most and why yeah i wrote a couple down here um, um you know some of the books i read before you know even right after panama and stuff i i remember one of the first books i read was the village it was made to read by john Fulchetti, my company commander um and i didn't read it so I, you know and then we did a pme and he looked at me he's like dale if you don't read that book you're like, and I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to fire you. And then 
just a, 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 a light was lit under my, and I became passionate about reading. And That was the know, moment. Yep. And, you know, we read, read a book on Sandino, I remember, from that time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we studied the Southern campaign for the Revolutionary War, which is a great campaign for counterinsurgency to study. You know, I read the, uh, the Savage Wars of Peace by Boot before I went to Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote that book in 2000, and he redid it when I was at the Council on Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. So there's another version that's got the Afghan and the uh, Iraq campaigns in it. But the, the first one, that, it ended in 2000. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, Max Boot? Max Boot, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's written uh, War Made, like you said, War Made New. Um, he did a book, I think. War on- Made New is a great, great book. And I tell you, the better one was is... Uh, is it small small wars or no, I'm trying- he, no he wrote uh the savage wars of peace there we go yeah. but he yeah. wrote uh, invisible armies that's the other one yeah that, that, that that's the textbook for the history of counter search in irregular warfare um here i wrote some other books down there I was going back thinking i was just looking in my bookcase last night because mm-hmm. now i do everything on kindle and and uh and uh audible i listen to a book book a week on audible mm-hmm. um i read a lot of, you know a lot, a lot on vietnam um nolan's books on vietnam all the marine battles keith nolan right Keith nolan right mm-hmm. um uh, the books on algiers with mm-hmm. uh gula and uh, who's the who's the guy that was uh torturing everybody uh, oh gosh yeah i uh yeah, yeah that's a I, I can book. see yeah i can see it i, I can't remember the name small wars manual mm-hmm. uh, i remember general lefevre gave me this book when i was i was company commander we went to a library then we w- came home did a workup and went to uh okinawa and he gave me this book uh bear came over the mountain right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah i'd never even heard of afghanistan right or read anything about it right it was right just think about it that was in um that was in the summer of 97. Wow. Right? Uh, less than I'm 10 years later. That book, right? That was, yeah, that was, you know, six years before I went to Afghanistan, seven years before. And I, I found myself in Afghanistan, in the eastern part where that book was mainly written about. And all so, the ambush sites are all the same. The, the routes in and out of the country, you know, it's geography. I just, I just listened to, it was like 43 hours of Eagle Against the Sun. Mm. Right, which is uh, the Pacific campaign, World mm-hmm. War II, right? And one of the main things about listening to that book is just, and I had maps out, is, is the geography. You know what? It, it ain't changed, right? Except for a couple of islands that the Chinese have made, you know, the geography is the same. Right, right. To what extent did your reading on counterinsurgency affect what you did? Huge. I mean, I and nothing I... We did, and particularly in Al Qaim, that's really where did true counterinsurgency. Uh, it wasn't uh, some brilliant thing that I came up with, right? It's, it's stuff that had been done before that worked mm-hmm. amongst the people, living amongst the people, living with your 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 partners. No shit, living with them, right? Even when I went back into uh, General Mattis, put together a team for for McChrystal. And I led it back into Afghanistan in the fall of 09 and visited 10 battalions. And I'm telling you, eight out of 10 of those battalions, there were two 
Billy McCullough's battalion was one. Uh, and there was a there was an army battalion out in host. It was truly doing it. They wasn't linking up for operations. Right? They were living with them, right? They were living with the Afghan army and Afghan police, living with them, sleeping in the same area, shitting in the same bucket, right? Eating dinner with them at night, right? Until you do that, right? It's like General Zenny's stories about, I mean, he lived with the, the Vietnamese Marine Corps, right? Uh, General Smith, General Boomer, General Livingston, mm-hmm. you know, Turley. I mean, they lived with them, right? right? They learned their language. That's true. That's the only way to be successful, right? And that's what uh, I'm saying his name, I'm Gula, right? In, in uh, Galula, Eastern, yeah, yeah, yeah. Galula, in Eastern mm-hmm. Algiers. That's what. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking about, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, it village with uh, Bing West's book, living with. Them. I mean, yeah, the the combined action platoons are. I mean, they're they're with and among the people, um, which I think you can make a very strong argument for is why they had such a, you know high success rate, or at least they're, they're depicted as, as being very successful as, as right. part of this ink block strategy. Just like we were extremely successful in Alcon because of that, mm-hmm. period. Right? And then it kind of swept, swept uh, to the east. So sir, all, all, this, all this talk on insurgency, counterinsurgency has, has me you know, thinking of my next question. Do you expect the Marine Corps to fight? Yeah, I, because I think China will fight us in an asymmetric manner. That's that's just like the Soviets did for all those years, just like the Russians are doing now. The Chinese will fight. Hell, just read their how they think. Right? Sun Tzu. I mean, it's, it's the only damn book we read about Chinese. That's another problem with us. We don't study the Chinese like we should. You know, I've been giving guys a few books to start to understand, you know, the Chinese way of thinking. You know, hundred year marathon, everything under the heavens, uh, the Asian cauldron. I mean, there's about six or seven books that I got that I've been going through just to begin to understand how how the Chinese think. So, if you were a betting man, you would you would not bet on the Marine Corps fighting a conventional fight with with China. They would they would do insurgencies. They would you know take a page out of their unrestricted warfare book. Yeah, irregular warfare, unrestricted and irregular warfare. You can call it whatever you want. I mean, there's all kinds of again, names for it, but um, that's, they think that way, right? They think about everything in a asymmetric, uh, not straight on way of fight, fighting. You know, we don't, we don't, st- so when you go to all our war colleges and all of our command staffs and our SAWs and AWS, I mean, what do we read? We read Western way of war. We read Thucydides, the, you know, the Athenians against the Spartans. You know, we, we read Clausewitz, uh, uh, right? Uh, we we read about Western way of war. We don't we spend we'll throw a, a little bit of uh, Sun Tzu in there just to say that we went, but we need to study the warring periods of of China and stuff, right? And 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 think how they fought then. You talk about it, and they fought in a very irregular, nasty way of war. Um, uh, you know, we would say unfair and sneaky right we need to understand that's the, they don't see it as sneaky right they, they see it totally sneaky. acceptable you know totally it acceptable is, to, it is, right, there is treachery there. subterfuge deception 
Exactly. So the the common you know, the assassin's mace, mm-hmm. right? So hundred year marathon and uh, everything under the heavens tells that story about you know it tells the the idea of the assassin's mace, right? So, sir, how do you you know how would you reconcile the the direction the Marine Corps is moving in with this? You know, it's just it's it's looking at the Pacific it, it, Pacific. It's it's looking at a conventional fight with China, lots of distributed ops, um, unmanned systems, and yet there's this specter of insurgency. And, and I would add, not just with China, right? We've got a long history of getting involved in insurgencies over the Marine Corps' history. What, you know, what, what would you like to see happen? Irregular, irregular warfare. Or yeah, uh, yeah I mean, they, some of them are insurgency. Some of them are just nasty, irregular fights. I mean, so how uh, did how, how would you balance these? How would you how would you right. balance the Marine Corps well, preparing? For- First off, I believe that we should be getting in the face of China, right? I believe that we should be involved over there. But I go back to what I, I've heard General Zenny say multiple times, and he says the Marine Corps needs a little bit of everything to do anything, anytime, anywhere today. And when we can't do that, we're in trouble, mm. right? It's about our ethos and our attitude, the stuff we was talking about earlier, right. just the way we think. And then we got a little bit of kit to do all kinds of stuff. And who knows what it's going to be and when it's going to be. But we've got to be rolled, able to get on planes and trains and automobiles today and get after our the nation don't need us, right? Because mm-hmm. the Army, Air Force, and the Navy wins wars. So, uh, so the commandant's moving in that direction, and that's because China is a real threat. And we got to figure it out as we go, right? We got to experiment our butt off. We got a war game, and, and we're doing all that, right? We're, mm-hmm. But we got to have a. We need to be careful, right? We don't want to get caught uh, without a little bit of everything to do anything, anytime, anywhere today. Sure. So, sir, and everybody knows it. And we talk about general officer level, right? We, there's a huge balance we got to make. Sir, you've commanded units across a range of operations, theaters, terrain. Which deployment has been the most influential for you and why? It ain't even close. Battalion command in, in Iraq, no 506. By far. And what's, you know. Yeah, I've been chasing that high for you know, uh, 15 years, never be replaced. So nothing comes close to being with your Marines and Al Qaim doing, right. doing those operations. You're doing. I mean, the battalion commands the last time you truly touch your Marine souls anyway. Right. Your troops become different. My, 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 you know, I was originally scheduled to take six Marines and about five weeks before change of command. That's when general Conway changed me through the basic school. Mm. And I, you know, I read probably, 30 books on coaching because I felt like I'd gone from being a player to a coach, mm-hmm. which ended up being a great two years. But my troops there were with my captains. Right. I'd give a shit about lieutenants, right? It was the because I knew if I took care of the 105 captains, that they would train to take care of the lieutenants. I remember you even, saying that. Even the majors were not as important and the five lieutenant colonels, but it was the captains. And I still stay in touch with many of those kids today. I I could have sworn you'd said I thought you said your main effort, you know, it wasn't the student, it was the captain. 
you know, where you put your attention was the captain. And it, it certainly showed. I mean, I, I saw it day to day. So if you could go back to your younger self, let's say as a platoon commander, company commander, and then a battalion commander, what would you say to each of these younger versions of yourself as they prepare to lead Marines yeah. in combat? I don't know. I think, you know, one thing that, you know, people don't talk enough about is the sacrifices that it took to, to be sitting in this chair today. And I, I've talked to my wife, I've said it in public, you know, uh, it's almost like I didn't have enough mental capacity to be a good, a great Marine and a really good father and husband. That is a extremely tough balance. You know, when you got, you know, 10, 11 deployments, you know, multiple combat deployments, the, the effect that that has on your family is humongous that the most American people don't know. Mm -hmm. So I think we should talk more with our young officers about that. The other day, 10th Marine CO had me over to the Fiddler's Green and I talked to all his lieutenants for a couple hours, just lieutenants. And I talked a little bit about this, this piece, right? After we talked about war fighting and reading and studying and doing TDGs and all the things, right? But, but I th it's, and it's more, it's more when you're in command and I've been in command just about my entire career. You know, I got very few staff jobs. Um, and when you're in command, your family becomes your Marines under you. And you to do it right, you have to be in the barracks on Saturday evening, Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning, you'll find that 18-year-old, that 19-year-old kid who can't even lift his head off the pillow because he's so damn hungover. But there's, there's, there might be a reason he's drank himself almost to death, right? Yeah. And if you're not around, to, to dig into it a little bit, you know, and then you'll Marines will start telling you things, right? On recruiting duty, man, I was on the road all the time. I lived in a hotel for three years because in order to be successful, I had to be out there with the Marines. I stood behind a damn desk in, in every school in, in the state of Tennessee in dress blues, right? And it's just take the hours it takes to truly be good is not talked about enough. Hmm. Uh, and the sacrifice it really takes. Um, it's easier to do when you're when you're in a staff job, right? Because you're especially you know you're you, you've got more of a, a steady schedule. But when you're a rifle platoon commander, rifle company commander, infantry battalion commander, you know CO of the basic school, you know think about the night, number of nights I stayed in the field up there, the the, the hours I spent with IOC, oh, yeah. twenty nine palms. Um, it's you know it, it's, it takes its toll so we need to we need to recognize that and talk about it and then try to figure out a better balance because uh, a lot of us right when you're young and you're good and everybody's telling you you're good and you're at, you become ambitious right you 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 you, you want to you're starting to move up you're really good at it you found something that you're passionate about it you're working really hard you're really good at it right everybody's telling you that you can neglect your family. Hmm. So there's a sacrifice to, to this, this way of life that we don't speak enough about until it's sometimes too late. So, and a lot of Marines get out because of that. Right. And I'm, I never try to talk somebody into staying in that. that right. Um, I would, 
you know, I had some great mentors. I, I began to read a lot uh, uh, as a young officer, you know, the, the TDGs and stuff. So the experiences that I had that I was able to build on from second lieutenant on, I mean, I don't want to be too arrogant, but I don't know if I could have done it much better. Hmm. Right? I mean, really, I mean, you do sound arrogant when you say this, but, you know, as a company commander, uh, well, as a lieutenant, I got augmented when nobody was getting augmented. Mm-hmm. Nobody was getting augmented, right? Uh, as a company commander, I got the left foot trophy. Yeah, as a battalion commander, I mean, I mean, I just was at the right place at the right time. Um, I, I I studied my profession hard. I would I would tell to continue to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for every hour that you work out, if you're not reading an hour, then you're wrong, right? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so which ain't easy to do, and it's not easy to to balance your life either. Um, as I, you know, that's the only regret, I guess I, I would tell you that guy. I would go back and try to figure out how to do that better. I don't know if I could have, but I would try. Did you, you know, did you have peers, bosses, you know, subordinates who ever seemed to crack the nut? on that or was this is this just a problem that's it's inherent to the profession this now, idea of not not there's the thing nobody will talk about this you hear all the time oh yeah god family core mm-hmm. bullshit it's core god family at, at best right core is what matters most right yeah. uh, to a lot of us right so you know, especially if you're really good at it and everybody's telling you you're good at it, right? It becomes, and, and hell, like I said, we're, we're brainwashed as it is. As the only thing matters in the world is the core, right? So <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for, for it, but yeah, it's a, it's something that we need to talk more about. So what was it like to serve during the height of yeah. the so-called maneuver warfare years? You know, was maneuver warfare a topic discussed or taught at TBS at, at IOC? Okay, so, so Major John Kelly was the director of IOC. When you went through. That was the, my introduction. And he was a 100% dyed in wool, gray, grayite. Wow. Warfare, right. And I remember Lynn out at a number of our training exercises. I mean, we did, well, we were all in little spider holes and they drove tanks right right by us and stuff, right? I mean, <clears throat> so from the get-go, I was, I was, I was in, right? <clears throat> and the little white book we read and we met General Gray, right? He was the commandant when I went to IOC and I remember him coming down there, right? So- What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it's like the fucking burning bus showed up, right? Well, Jesus just came in, right? I mean, and then, you know, my time at, at the TBS and the Warfighting Lab and all, I really got to know General Gray well, and, and he would come visit on a number. I got to go to breakfast and lunch with him on a number of occasions. So uh, every time you're around him, it's, he really is a special, special Marine. Yeah. And John, General John, John Kelly, his time was... It was the major it was too and i've over the years continued to be mentored by him and ran into him over and over again so um, i was i was indoctrinated from the very beginning you know in, in 88 
What's also interesting about the the cadre under Kelly, a bunch of those captains went on to become generals. Some of them are still serving. Absolutely, Furness and the crew, right? I mean, a bunch, all, I mean, a bunch of us, right? All a lot of us came through when he was the uh, director of IOC, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, um, I wish we heard more from, from him. Right? You know, with the becoming the chief of staff for the White House and, and leaving after a couple of years there was, uh, we heard a lot from him in, in a couple of years, mm-hmm. but uh, he's, uh, he's also a jewel to the core. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Bill Lynn coming down and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it sounds like observing some of these exercises at IOC. Did you ever get a chance to speak with, with, Oh Bill? yeah, I've, I've spoke with him a lot and he ran that, that, that uh, thing at at AWS, the evening classes. That's right. I think it was a, you know. I went to a number of those. And I corresponded with him. Of course, you know, he corresponds no shit. Uh, oh, yeah. Type or a hand letter. He don't do computers. Anyway. Yeah, so I've, uh, yeah, I know, I know Mr. Lynn well. What, and he's what, very controversial in all the years. Um, but he, so was Boyd, though. I didn't know Boyd, but I read it. I read uh, Corwin's book, mm-hmm. just like uh, uh, Krulak. Right. His book, his book. You know, the thing that they had in common, they're both that wasn't very good people, but unbelievable at what they did, right? At least that's the way Corwin presents them, right? Right. What, you know, I'm, I'm curious, what was your reaction to seeing Lynn, you know, this civilian who's got no military experience wearing, wearing all the German stuff. Right. Time. Right. And, and talking yeah. about the Germans uh, all the time, but yeah. John and Kelly, I, this... I read all, you know, Rommel and Ger, uh, Gerdarian and mm-hmm. all the Panzer leader and, and I read them all. Right. So he sold me. Yeah. Right. But it's, you know, you, you weren't because uh, I know, you know, this Lynn, so yes, Lynn is controversial. Um, he is very sardonic. You know, he, he's got he's got a wit and a and a sarcasm. You know that can cut people's cut cut down to the bone. He made us think, though. And and you appreciated that of him. I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've, and I and I had over the years. He came to uh, TBS a couple of times when I was there. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're not going. I'm not going to say anything bad about him. Yes, he's a little different, but um, he made us think. I mean, like T.X. Hammes. Sometimes I want to beat him up, but uh, but he makes you think, right? Sure. So, just a few more questions about maneuver warfare, sir. Um, did you have any aha moments when it come when it came to understanding and applying the philosophy in that white book in FMFM one and later MCDP one? Was there anything that you experienced, or? I mean, from from the get go, I was, uh, I believed it. So I don't remember any aha moments. But I truly. So, I, so the problem with that little book is we talk about it, but we don't actually don't practice it, and, right? We trust tactics. We got we got generals doing colonels' jobs, and we got colonels doing majors' jobs, right? And the ability to know shit, understand your people, and let them run, give them your intent, and then let them execute. They'll make you look good if you do it, but it's it's easier said than done. Because I'm so smart, I, I know I have to be involved. I have to know everything, right? And we we uh, you know it's like Rommel's four 
officers, your best commander is smart and lazy. Your best three, your, your opso, he needs to be smart and very energetic, right? You're lazy and dumb, don't worry about him. The one you better put a bullet in his head as soon as you find is your really energetic, dumb guy, right? You got to kill Four him. Four types of officers. Up, he'll screw up more shit. Right? <laughs> but, but the point of that is you're a guy who can give intent, smart, and then let people run and don't have to do everything yourself. It makes your best commanders. That's the white book. Why do you, you know, why do you think there is this, <laughs> because there's this disconnect? Trust because we don't really trust and we don't really do it. The reason it happens in, in combat is because the, the control freaks can't control it no matter how hard they try because it's too big and too unwieldy in combat. And garrison is much easier to control everything. So the tendency is to control everything. So that leads me into the other question I wanted to ask you about this. What does, what does war fighting, the philosophy, maneuver warfare, what does that look like in Garrison? I believe I do. I wish you could interview my two colonels. Hell. Hey, Z. Yes, sir. Hey, tell uh, Davis to come here. Chief. I'm going to let him sit here for five minutes. I'm going to leave. Okay, you, great. And you tell. Just to, here's an example. <laughs> Ask him that question. What does it look like? <coughs> and then I. And then I'll come back. I'll go Wonderful. today. Wonderful, sir. Thank you. This is awesome. Is he out there? Not yet, sir. Hey, come here. You sit right there in that chair. I'm going to tell you what and answer his question. It's Carl Davis, Chief of sir? Staff. Sir, how's it going? I'm Damien O'Connell. Um, I'm, I'm interviewing uh, General Alford for a podcast, and we were getting into the subject of maneuver warfare. And the general was the general was saying that he, he thinks the Marine Corps has there's a disconnect. There's a say do disconnect between uh, the trust that war fighting, that maneuver warfare, uh, says we should place in our Marines and what we actually do. So I asked him why he brought you in. You know what does maneuver, maneuver warfare in garrison look like? And he said, let me, let me get one of my colonels and he can, he can tell you. So if, if you'd just be willing to, to talk about, you know, what that looks like in your organization serving under, under General Alford, and you can go in whatever direction you like. So, you know, maneuver warfare as an infantryman, we like to, you know, talk about finding the seams and the gaps in the defense and assaulting through with smaller, more nimble forces and, you know, dismantling, a larger combat power. And, you know, when you do come into a base or station environment, you're like, well, how does this work? And I'll tell you that there are still trust tactics. The whole idea, but after, you know, World War I, you know, trust tactics on the Western Front, they were smaller, they had to engage more uh, formidable allied defenses. They had to trust their corporals and sergeants to do the right thing. Nothing changes when you go to a base or station, except now the threat is is covid or it's a destructive weather event it's a hurricane or it's it could be just limited resources and so general alfred you know he just tells his commanders and his staff you know execute you know make the decision 
make a decision and, and then brief me on what you did. And, you know, you stay within the right and left lateral limits that I've given you in Commander's Intent. You know my intent, it's support Marines and it's, you know, make the environment as best you can with the resources you've got and we execute. And more often than not, he can go and do official business for the Marine Corps and come back and he looks at his colonels and he said, what'd you all do? It's not, you know, prove to me on PowerPoint why you did it. Let me manage my risk. You know, he, he, he takes on the risk, but he empowers his subordinates to do, in his mind, do the right thing. And so he does that in spades every day. And as the chief of staff, it's liberating because, you know, you'd want that to be, that's a common trait amongst Marines. But as we go further away from sustained combat in, you know, Middle Asia, we are starting to forget where we came from. And, and General Alfred ensures every day that we do that. And, you know, he'll, he will make correction on you if you as, as another commander or as another leader aren't trusting your subordinates. Mm. You know, this goes all the way down to, you know, that power line for person that's working utilities or a sewer worker or uh, someone that's working in MCCS, you know, the Marine, the Marine welfare folks, you sure, know, working sure. at Marine Mart. Make the decision, you know, support that family and make the right decision. And, and that's what he does. How does this compare to other commanders you've worked for? Yep. No, I've, been, I've been blessed that I've worked in the infantry for almost 28 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would like to think that we still have a, a corner market on leadership. But I, I will tell you that I look left and right and we are starting to become um, risk averse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you just watch the ridge lines and, you know, commanders make decisions and you make the wrong one and you're on the Marine Corps Times as we just lost, you know, special trust and confidence. Yeah. You know, we, we've forgotten sometimes that it's okay to sometimes hug your subordinate and, and make it right instead of sitting there and punishing. So, uh, you know, that, that's trust tactics. Hey, let me tell you about this guy. He, he can give a shit what I write or think about him, right? He's, he's a bull colonel who's going to retire and, and fish for a living. True. And uh, awesome. so every, every what he told you, that's it my was, one. The, the, this, is, this is awesome. This is fantastic. Sir, thank you so much. Thanks. Hey, he didn't have a knife in my back as he was talking. No, about. hey, uh, and for he the listeners, the I, I watched the whole thing, right? It was just yeah, me. Watched and the it all. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. Yeah. All right. Hey, you know, uh, I, I got to go, go pick up my vehicle before they close. I, I had all service done on today. Can we? No problem, sir. I was going to ask you our, our yeah, wrap up question. question. Yeah. Um, by the way, that was probably the coolest thing to have happened on on this podcast so far. Like of all the podcasts I've done, I thought that was just badass. So thank you for doing that. Um, would you like to share any parting thoughts or shots with our listeners? Yeah, well, I think I probably said enough. But <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're back to you know that one downer part about. I mean, being a marine been 33 years or I've been a Marine 35 total, but active duty 33 almost. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, and, uh, had some hell of an experiences of, and been at the right place at the right time, the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know what you want to call it, but <laughs> I literally have had the opportunity to command at every rank, second Lieutenant through major general. And I've been to combat in every rank, second Lieutenant through major general or in a combat zone. Sure. You know, Liberia, um, uh, Iraq as a one star, uh, but I was in Afghanistan as one as well, um, and a two. Um, and just hell of a life. 
uh, went and traded for the world. But looking forward to uh, moving on next year, hopefully, and uh, hopefully I can continue to give back. That's where I'm at now. You know, I'm truly am a coach now, right? Um, uh, you go from being a player to a kind of a player coach to a no shit a coach. Hmm. Um, and then I would still like to be a coach. I'd like to teach. I'd like to maybe work uh, with young people who want to serve their nation, that type of stuff. You given any yeah. thought to uh, writing, writing about your experiences? Um, uh, one of these days I might sit on the front porch, drink whiskey and talk to a ghost writer, but I ain't writing shit. I oh. sweat when I write, man. I can do math. I can keep everybody's score and everybody, all, I can keep the whole foursome score when I'm playing golf with, in my head, but I can't spell my last name. So, um, if I had a ghostwriter, I might do it one day. I don't know. Well, sir, if you know, if you're taking applications, you know, I'll send yeah. you my resume. But uh, hey, this was just an absolute joy. Um, I, I enjoyed this so much and, and got so much out of it, and I, I think our listeners will too. And I'd love, as we discussed, I'd love to uh, do a follow-up conversations or yeah, follow-up conversation. Send me and Z a note, and we'll see if we can set it up. Fantastic, sir. Thank you so much, and uh, yes. we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Always good to see you, buddy. All right. Take care, sir. Bye-bye.